Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This week's episode, by the book, Fight Like Jesus. And on the podcast this week, I would like to share with you a conversation that I had with Jason Porterfield on his new book, Fight Like Jesus, How Jesus Waged Peace Throughout Holy Week. And as we are, in fact, approaching Holy Week in the church calendar, I thought this would be an excellent time to release this conversation. Jason's book, as the subtitle implies, is a close-up examination, not just of Holy Week in general, but of each day of Holy Week, starting with Palm Sunday, which we are about ready to celebrate in the church calendar this coming Sunday, and then looking at Holy Monday and Holy Tuesday, and Holy Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then of course Easter Sunday, and recognizing, as Jason will explain in our conversation, how Jesus's means and Jesus's ways of making peace were at odds with his own people's expectations and desires for how peace is made, but are oftentimes still at odds with even the way Christians approach peacemaking. And so Jason's book is outstanding. And we actually had this conversation before Lent began. And after reading his book and then rereading it, it occurred to me that it might be beneficial in our church if I were to take each day of Holy Week and use the Sundays that are throughout the Lenten season and actually preach each day using Jason's book as a guide for um, for our time in Lent. And I think there was a point in the conversation where I even said to him, hey, I'm thinking about doing this. You know, this might be an idea. Well, I, I have been doing that in our church. And this week, while we are celebrating Palm Sunday, we have actually made it now all the way to Friday. And so we'll be looking at the crucifixion itself and, and what that means for for our world. And so um, it's gone really well in our church. I'm very um, excited about the insights that Jason provides. This book is very, very accessible for just about anyone to pick up and read. And yet Jason has looked at the cultural context, historical context. He's brought in um, Greek lessons that you can follow along and understand, particularly as it relates to Jesus's use of a whip in the temple on Holy Monday and how based upon the Greek usage that John employs in chapter two, um, we get a very clear um, picture of exactly what Jesus was using that whip for um, in the temple, regardless of the way it's sometimes interpreted. And so I'll let Jason throughout our conversation, um, talk to you about these things. I do think we actually make it through all seven days, which was lots of fun. It's a little over an hour long, but I just want to introduce you to Jason with, with a bio that he has. And that is, um, that he's made his home in places abandoned by society from Canada's poorest neighborhood to the slums of Indonesia. His passion is to cultivate God's shalom wherever it is painfully absent and to help churches embrace their peacemaking vocation. In 2007, Jason joined Servants, an international network of Christian communities living and ministering among the urban poor. He was a founding member of the Servants team in Vancouver, started a new team in Indonesia, and directed operations in North America through 2015. 
Jason holds a Master of Theology from Fuller Theological Seminary and is the author of Fight Like Jesus, an award-winning book that equips readers with practical peacemaking skills as it examines how Jesus waged peace on each day of Holy Week. Today, you'll find Jason living in his riskiest location yet, next door to his in-laws. And this conversation was a lot of fun. I have come to really appreciate Jason and his work and his book, Fight Like Jesus, I have recently added, um, along with Matt Tebby's book, Having the Mind of Christ, um, to my reading list that several of you had requested a copy of um, months ago. And so Fight Like Jesus is now on that list um, as being books that I would highly recommend anybody to jump into and read. And so as you approach Holy Week, if you're listening to these in real time, this will serve as a bit of a guide for you. And each day that you approach Holy Week, you might go back and re-listen to the little section where we talk about that chapter of Jason's book, which is in fact dedicated toward each day. And I pray that that this Holy Week will be transformational for you, will be um, meaningful and powerful in a way that you might have never considered before. I am grateful to Jason for all of the insights that I have now um, gained in my own life and how perfectly they fit with so many other things that God's been teaching me, but it really feels like so many of those things have come together into one condensed understanding that Jesus's ways of making peace are radically different from the peacemaking approaches that people have in this world, which is why I'm really convinced when Jesus told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would be fighting to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is from another place. And I'm really convinced that the church today desperately needs Jesus's view of peacemaking, Jesus's view of shalom and how that is accomplished and how that is maintained and why that is supposed to be the spirit that captures the hearts of Christians to such an extent that it literally will look like foolishness to the rest of the world. And I consider it an honor to wear a badge of shame and foolishness in the name of Christ. And I pray that you will be encouraged by this conversation such that you will start to think, maybe we need to rethink the way we approach everything. So I'm excited about this conversation, really grateful to Jason. And so without any more of me rambling and having an introduction, I offer to you the conversation I have with Jason Porterfield. Thank you so much, Jason, for coming on the podcast today. I'm really glad that uh, we have a chance to sit down and talk about your book. Yeah, thanks, Joshua. It's an honor to be here with you today. Well, for my own benefit and then for our listeners, I'd really love it if we could just jump right in and have you... Tell us a little bit about yourself, and I guess maybe if you could tie that in a little bit into what inspired you to write Fight Like Jesus. Sure. So uh, I grew up in a military family, so I, I think I lived in eight places by the time I was six, but we eventually settled in Pennsylvania, where I attended uh, a Southern Baptist church that, uh, you know, a wonderful congregation, people dearly loved Jesus um, and dearly loved the Bible, and so... Um, really appreciated that upbringing. It was a you know a pretty conservative, uh, patriotic upbringing. A number of military bases around it, 
the church. Uh, and then in college, I went to a, a school called Messiah College, or now Messiah University, that historically was founded by the Brethren in Christ denomination, so Anabaptist. And it was there that I began to grapple, honestly, mostly outside of the classroom with my uh, with my peers, but began to grapple with, uh, you know, what is it? What did Jesus mean when he said, love your enemies and issues of violence and war and injustice and poverty? Uh, 9-11 happened my freshman year, so that really shaped my whole college experience for, for my classmates and I. Um, one formative event was actually, I think it was my junior year, uh, you had mandatory chapels a couple times a week that you go to. And and so I, I dragged myself to chapel, and it was a guest speaker that day, and he got up and he said something like, I grew up Amish, but God has called me to minister in the city of Philadelphia. For the, uh, for the first time in history, more people live inside of cities than outside of them. But in my city, the city of brotherly love, as soon as Christians can get enough money, they're fleeing to the suburbs. And I remember him saying, you know, this is a tragedy. And as I sat in the gym bleachers there listening to him, I thought I was just kind of making an observation, but I guess I didn't articulate it clearly enough because it seems God thought I was volunteering. Um, I remember saying to God, well, God, if you could use an Amish guy, you could use me, a suburban boy. And uh, I kid you not, like as soon as chapel ended, like I'm trying to squeeze through the back doors and rush to class with all the other students, right? And my friend, uh, a friend of mine, Stephanie, she bumped into me and she, out of breath. She says, Jason, I just signed you up to lead a spring break mission trip to Camden, New Jersey. It's officially ranked the worst city in the United States. I know God is calling you to this, so don't try to back out. I, I was, you know, flabbergasted. And of course, I tried to back out. So I went to the missions hub uh, called the Agape Center on campus. And I said, look, there's some mistake. I didn't actually sign myself up for this. So then they guilt tripped me, Joshua. And they said, look, we got nine freshmen signed up. We need an upperclassman to drive the van. If you don't go and lead the trip, We'll have to cancel and they'll have to find something else to do for spring break. So sure enough, you know, a few weeks later, I'm driving a group of college students to, to Camden. And there I, I had never seen such poverty and such what I would call uh, environmental racism. Um, just so mm. many polluting factories dumping pollution into these predominantly African-American and Hispanic neighborhoods. But I also... Saw, saw something in Camden that just forever changed my life. And it was a, a community of Christians who had all left good paying jobs and moved to what was probably the roughest intersection of Camden. And there they were just shining the love of Christ. And so after that week, I, you know, I left Camden thinking, I remember Mother Teresa's famous line was, was often in my mind back then. And people would often ask if they could come join her in Calcutta. Sometimes she'd say yes, but often she'd say, Calcuttas are everywhere. If you only have eyes to see, find your Calcutta. And that's what I felt like God was saying to me. You know, the Camden, New Jersey's of the world are everywhere. Find your Camden. So a couple of years after college, I joined an international network of Christian communities called Servants. And Servants was started by a man out of New Zealand in the early 1980s. And, uh, he was really burdened by the number of people living in slums. One in six people on earth live in urban slums. And so um, historically, servants' communities have all lived and ministered in the slums of Southeast Asia, but they were having growing interest from North Americans like myself. And so they decided to 
start a community that could kind of also send function as a sending hub. Um, and so they chose uh, to set up a community in Canada's poorest urban neighborhood. It's a section of Vancouver known as the downtown east side. So January 1st, 2007, I moved to the downtown east side. Um, and that's really where the story begins for this book. Wow. Yeah. And so, I mean, and, and so that's what you're doing. You're, you're still involved in that kind of ministry today, right? So I'm not in Vancouver. My, the goal um, from the start, really, with moving to Vancouver was to get mentored by uh, one of the other families there uh, who had been in Cambodia in Phnom Penh for about 10 mm. years, and they're now back in Cambodia. And the hope was to form a new community to start uh, to find a slum to move into in Indonesia. And so after three years in Vancouver, we had enough people together to start that community in Jakarta, the capital city. And that community is still there by God's grace. But then I came back and oversaw the, the sending office. And uh, now I live down in Houston, Texas, and, uh, and just a really active board member for that, for servants. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Wow. So you said, yeah, that's that's kind of the the backstory, and so you're able to, as I read numerous times in your book, <clears throat> you know, you're you're identifying things that you see in the cities or in places, and then you're applying these principles of Jesus's ways of making peace, um, which I found incredibly insightful. I mean, things that you're just stating as such plain observations, and I'm I'm like, oh my goodness, that's that's so true. Why have I never thought about it like that before? Um, so how, how is your book different from other Christian books on peacemaking or nonviolence? Sure. Well, I, I believe you're in the middle, right, of a, a, a podcast series looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Is that correct? That's right. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think most books on peacemaking tend to focus on the Sermon on the Mount, and that's for good reason. It, that sermon contains the core of Jesus's peace teaching, you know. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Bless those who curse you. Do not violently resist an evil person. Turn the other cheek, right? Right. The problem for me when I moved into the downtown east side in Canada was I could quote that teaching verbatim. I just didn't know how to apply it, especially, especially in the complexity and the messiness of that neighborhood. You know, um, on any given night, 5,000 of my neighbors in the downtown east side were struggling with addictions to drugs, 1,200 were experiencing homelessness, and over 900 women were trapped in prostitution. Um, and like I tell in the opening story of the book, a couple weeks after I arrived, uh, I was blindsided to, to learn that the trial had just begun for Robert Picton, the man who is, is known as Canada's deadliest serial killer. So for over a decade, he'd drive into the downtown east side, pick up one of the women engaged in sex work, take her back to his farm and, and kill her. And by the time of his arrest, he had butchered and fed to his pigs the bodies of 49 women, almost all from my neighborhood. Mm. So, you know, how do I how do I contend for the flourishing of this community? How do I try to cultivate shalom in this place where it's painfully absent? And though I could quote Jesus's peace teaching, I struggled to know how to flush it out. In that neighborhood, and and that's the beauty of Holy Week. <clears throat> you know, I, I one day I uh, had an epiphany. It was Palm Sunday, and I was in in church there, 
pretty burnt out. And the church, uh, you know, turned the day into a joyous occasion like most churches do. The the children parade through the sanctuary. We all chant Hosanna. All the songs are suddenly in a major key, you know. Um, everyone was just celebratory, except for me. I was burnt out. I was crushed and burdened by the brokenness of my neighborhood. And so I just decided to open the Gospels and read their accounts of Palm Sunday. And that's when I I noticed something I had overlooked uh, every other time I'd read the Gospels. And that's in the Gospel of Luke, it says, while the crowds were shouting cheers, that Jesus was shedding tears. And when he could hold back his grief no more, he cries out for everyone to hear, if only you knew on this of all days, the things that make for peace. And Joshua, that that was the cry of my heart, right? Like, what are the things that make for peace? And and so the reason this book's different than other books on on peacemaking and, and the reason I felt compelled to write it was because I needed a resource that that showed how Jesus fleshed out his peace teaching. And that's the beauty of Holy Week. It's the main stage on which we get to see Jesus put all of his previous peace teaching into action. You know, a third of the Gospels focus on Jesus's last week. And so throughout those those days, we get to see formerly abstract principles like be merciful, they find concrete expression, or those lofty ethical ideals like love your enemies, they become grounded in actual events. And so like I say in the book, if you if you want to learn how Jesus makes peace, there's no better place to look than Holy Week. So the book goes day by day through through <clears throat> excuse me, through Holy Week, um, extracting peacemaking lessons for us as it looks at how Jesus contended for peace on each day. Yeah, and this was fantastic. I, I first of all, I love the way you set the book up, where each chapter is a different day of Holy Week, which I think is is an outstanding way to look at this. And I'm an Anglican priest, and in our tradition, we don't we don't meet as often as some traditions do. But we have Palm Sunday, and then we do Monday Thursday service, Good Friday service, and then Easter Sunday. So we have a few more than my baptist church did growing up um then you know it's just palm sunday and then easter but and you identified this too is that most most books on holy week most church traditions tend to focus on the second half of the week um but why is it that you dedicate so much of your book to the first half of holy week could you dive into that for us a little bit sure uh i mean the short answer is i did that because that's what the gospel writers do they front load their coverage of holy week you know, so pop quiz for your listeners, Joshua, you'll know the answer to this since you read the book, but for your listeners, take a second and guess which day of Holy Week do you think is the most talked about day in the Gospels? Is it Palm Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, Saturday, Easter, Sunday? You know, I probably would have guessed Friday or Sunday, or if yeah. I really sat and thought about it for a long time, maybe Monday, Thursday, because of that lengthy farewell discourse that's recorded. But the most talked about day is actually Tuesday of Holy Week. I mean, Matthew actually has more to say about that day than all the other days of Holy Week combined. <laughs> it's oh, wow. twice as long as his coverage of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and so, the, the re, you know, to give a more lengthy answer as to why I tried to take my time with those first days of Holy Week is, you know, I believe that lament on Palm Sunday when Jesus said, if only you knew the things that make for peace. By speaking of things in the plural, 
he indicated that his peacemaking efforts would be multifaceted in nature. We can't reduce it to one solitary act. You know, I used to think I, I knew uh, what Jesus was referring to with that lament. I mean, the answer was obvious. It's the cross, right? Um, and I still believe that answer is true. I mean, it's wonderfully true, beautifully true, foundationally true. It's just not the whole truth. Um, and I've come to see that Jesus was crucified on Friday precisely because of how he confronted injustice and contended for peace on the previous days of Holy Week. Mm. And it wasn't a motivation to initially start writing the book, but pretty quickly I came to realize that if we fail to see uh, the context of the cross, if we, if we strip the cross from its context, we uproot it from its context, we sever it from the life of the one who gives it meaning, then we could actually, you know, despite being familiar with all the events of Holy Week, and despite saying that we cling to the cross of Christ for our salvation, we may be shocked one day to realize that we've actually embraced the very approach to peacemaking that justified nailing Jesus to a cross. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it was really important to make sure I, I did justice and gave enough time for those first four or five days of Holy Week. Yeah, well, <clears throat> that's probably one of the, the biggest insights I walked away with um, having read through your book, and, and I've read it twice now. Um, I'm actually considering doing a kind of uh, an overview of your book throughout Lent um, in our church. I've been thinking about preaching the Palm Sunday on the first Sunday in Lent and then Monday on the second Sunday in Lent and going on that way. Yeah, um, yeah. Cr- crediting your book, but kind of trying to tie it together. And again, I know you don't, we don't have time to hit every passage that could be, that could be addressed, but, but addressing that question. And if Jesus was put to death on Friday for the things that he did during Holy Week, then we need to make sure we are, um, well, as your Palm Sunday uh, chapter focuses on the, the difference between hammers and lambs. And yeah. so, um, you know, if you could talk for us just a little bit, if you're, if you're saying, well, the crowd is, is you know, cheering, you know, Jesus is is weeping. Um, if there's a contrast there between maybe what the crowd was rooting for and hoping for and what Jesus actually knew he has come to do, um, it seems like the crowd wanted him to be the hammer of God, but he revealed himself to be the lamb of God. So could you unpack that observation for us a little bit and walk us through some of that uh, discrepancy on Palm Sunday? You bet. Yeah. So first, I think we need to realize that the week that we call Holy Week, Jesus and his contemporaries would have referred to as Passover. You know, uh, all faithful Jews were flooding to Jerusalem, (laughs) Jerusalem, Shalom, the city whose name means peace. They were gathering there to celebrate the week-long Passover festivities. And and Passover was a holy week to remember the time that God liberated his people from an oppressive superpower originally Egypt, right? Well, for people struggling under the yoke of yet another oppressive superpower, this time Rome, Passover was a painful reminder that they were no longer free. And so, you know, year after year, they'd gathered together to remember God's historic liberation from Egypt, of, of them from Egypt. And year after year, they longed that he would liberate them once again. So the week actually had a track record of inciting all-out insurrection. In in 4 BC, for example, a a group of frustrated Jews gathered recruits in the temple and stoned to death some some Roman soldiers. So then Herod Archelaus uh, 
gathered together more troops and quickly rushed into the city, killed 3,000 Jews, and canceled that year's Passover. And as a result of that, Rome actually uh, made a, a new policy that said their, their ruler over the province had to be in Jerusalem for Passover and had to bring reinforcements. So on this particular Passover, you know, the one that we're looking at, uh, the, the provincial ruler, Pontius Pilate, left his, his home on the coast of the Mediterranean and marched what, what scholars think uh, he brought enough troops to triple the number of troops normally in Jerusalem. And he would have marched with a, a massive show of force meant to try to deter any thought of rebellion, right? And his triumphal entry, we could call it, would have come in through the western side of the city. But we read that uh, Jesus and his motley crew are making a not-so-triumphal entry from the other side of the city, and that the crowds go out to meet him, we're told, because they heard he had raised Lazarus from the dead. So here's a man that can control death itself. You know, Maybe he has more power than Pontius Pilate. And so to understand Jesus's actions with his triumphal entry, you first need to understand what the crowd's actions signify. So the, the Gospels, uh, they, they describe the crowds doing four different things. First of all, they chant Hosanna, which I just thought was a synonym of like hallelujah, like it means praise God or something. But Hosanna, it's actually the Aramaic form of a, a two-part Hebrew word, Hoshia and Na. And Hoshia means liberate us, save us, deliver us, and nah, it just adds a sense of urgency. So fuse those two together and you get, you know, liberate us now, save us, we plead, uh, deliver us, we pray. It, it's a cry for help. Hmm. They also quote uh, from Psalm 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But then they add some words not found anywhere in that psalm, the king of Israel. They call Jesus their king. It says they also lay their coats on the ground, which might seem strange to you and I, but but for Jesus's coatless onlookers, they knew exactly what that meant. That that was a customary way to coronate a king. That's what they did when Jehu was crowned king in Second Kings chapter nine, for example. And then there's one more detail. Gospel of John tells us that they waved palm branches. And I always thought palm branches were like the the ancient equivalent of those giant foam hands you see at sporting events. You know, like I thought yeah. waving them meant like you're awesome, Jesus. I'm your number one fan. You know, you're my religious hero. Um, but they actually palm branches were a politically loaded symbol uh, that harkened back 200 years ago, actually, when the people of Judea were under the um, the thumb of yet another superpower the Seleucid Empire, and uh, their king came in and he ransacked the temple, slaughtered an unclean pig on the altar, and sprinkled its blood throughout the temple. And then he ordered all the towns of Judea to offer sacrifices to his gods and sent inspectors to make sure they did so. Well, there was a little town called Modin that had a, a, an elderly priest named Mattathias. And when the king's inspector came, one of Mattathias's uh, fellow countrymen actually offered, volunteered to offer the sacrifice to those gods. Well, Mattathias in his zeal lunged forward and he stabbed the apostate to death, killed the king's inspector, tore down the altar, and then he fled to the hills. And soon after his health deteriorated and he gathered his five sons around him and his dying words to them were, avenge the wrong done to your people, pay back the Gentiles in full. 
his middle son Judas took up that that battle cry and led a pretty successful revolt against the Seleucids and actually gained back most of Jerusalem, including the temple. And we read, as he made his triumphal entry on a war horse into Jerusalem and then proceeded to cleanse the temple, that the crowds lined his path and waved palm branches. And in fact, uh, when they thought, we're going to get our independence, they started to mint their own coins. And on the coin, they put a palm tree and encircled it with the battle cry for the redemption of Zion. And we know that, that the palm branch remained the symbol of the Jewish people's um, nationalist aspirations um, because even a couple decades after Jesus, uh, there was the Jewish-Roman War. And at that time, once again, the Jewish people started to mint their own coins. And once again, they put the palm branch as their symbol. Uh, so in other words, when the crowds were waving palm branches, they were, they were demonstrating their desire to be liberated. And what's more, waving them at Jesus meant that they thought he would be their liberator. So that's, that's what the crowds thought Jesus was doing. And, and I should add that uh, Judas, the middle son of Mattathias, he was so fierce in battle that his countrymen gave him the nickname Maccabeus, which means the hammer. So you're asking about the hammer. You know, so in other words, the crowds thought Jesus was coming as the hammer of God to bring a hammer down upon their enemies. Mm-hmm. But Jesus, he, he sets up his, his not-so-triumphal entry, his counter-procession, to demonstrate that he was not the hammer of God. He was coming as something else. <clears throat> so first he rode a donkey instead of a war horse, a symbol of peace, and John's gospel explicitly tells us he rode that donkey to fulfill Zechariah's vision from chapter 9 of a peaceable king who would come to speak peace to all nations and, get this, remove the weapons of war from his own people. Mm. Uh, And and then the timing and the location are also significant. You know, Jesus entered Jerusalem on the first day of Passover, a Sunday, probably the year 30 A.D., Uh, But more importantly, we know it was the 10th day of the Jewish month of Nisan, which according to Mosaic law was the day when all uh, the Passover pilgrims were to choose their lamb that they would sacrifice four days later. It was lamb selection day. We also know those lambs were, almost all of them were provided from Bethlehem. And Jesus's route, going down the Mount of Olives, crossing the Kidron Valley, would have then lined up with the route that the sheep would have been taking, And Jesus almost certainly entered through what was known as the Sheep Gate. So in other words, Jesus is is subtly, yes, but unambiguously declaring, I'm not coming as the hammer of God. I'm coming as the Lamb of God. Wow. Man, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. And so for sure, we, we know that imagery. I mean, like a lamb led to the slaughter. He did not open his mouth. I mean, there's so much of this innocent, humble, um, yeah. posture that, that Jesus, that Jesus takes. In fact, I think you said, um, also in that chapter that, that, um, during Passover, then for the next four days, the, the, the families were to inspect their lamb thoroughly to make sure that it was without spot or blemish at all. And we can kind of map that onto Jesus's life and suggest that over the next several days, he too is being critiqued at every turn. You know, is he really the spotless um, unblemished lamb that we that we need him to be, and um, that I think is really what launches in because you know having a book on peacemaking is so refreshing, but there was so much conflict 
um, during Jesus's final week, and um, some of which he instigates, and some of the time it's the religious leaders or the Sanhedrin who's coming to him and and challenging some of the things that he's doing. Um, but so let's just, I mean, we've got some time. Let's, let's walk through the next day. Um, so I, I think right off the bat, you, you, you point out how on the very next day, Monday, um, we might almost be confronted with the very thing that would seem to upend this idea that Jesus has come peaceably or like a lamb because he walks into a temple and he, he has a whip and, and depending on what gospel you're reading, um, you know, you, you can't quite exactly tell who he's whipping and what he's doing there, but could you kind of unpack that for us and, and show or explain how you, you actually see this advancing Jesus's understanding of making peace, not actually contradicting it? Yeah, you know, I didn't write this book for it to be apologetic in nature in the sense of um, trying to defend or answer the objections of those who don't hold to a nonviolent peacemaking ethic, but it's interesting that a couple of the passages that that uh, is often brought up against nonviolent peacemaking are events that took place during Holy Week. One of those being uh, what's referred to as the cleansing of the temple on Monday. And so it, it can seem like a very confusing passage. You know, I, I just mentioned he rode a donkey to fulfill Zechariah's vision where it says he'll remove the weapons of war for, from his own people. But the very next day, he's picking up a weapon, it seems, right? Mm, um, yeah. And it doesn't help that pretty much every artistic rendering of this event depicts Jesus using the whip on people. Um, and, and the result of that, this portrayal, is that many Christians have found a convenient way to justify their own violent intentions. You know, um, if Jesus hurt people with a whip, then under the right conditions, his followers may also use force. At least that's the argument. Of course, those conditions are never identified. You know, instead, Christians divorce Jesus' actions from what actually were the issues that upset him uh, on that day. Um, and also by classifying the whip as a weapon, many Christians have concluded that any weapon can be used, you know, even ones that are infinitely more lethal and indiscriminate than a whip. So it, it's, a, it's very much a problematic text. I mean, St. Bernard of Clairvaux in, this, in the Second Crusades, told the Knights Templar, repel the foes of Christ, for our Savior armed his most holy hands with a whip. You know, even John Calvin used this passage to justify having a, a theological opponent of his put to death. Um, so, so, like you said, I, I didn't want to just neutralize what some seem see as a toxic text or a problematic text. I wanted to show how it actually advances our understanding of peacemaking. Um, there's probably not a, enough time to go through the whole chapter. It's a pretty long chapter, but, but in essence, you know, the Gospels actually divide that event into three stages, and the first stage actually occurs the night before. It's, it's um, the last thing we read about Palm Sunday uh, is that Jesus enters the city, he goes into the temple, and he looks around, and then it says he returns to Bethany for the night. That's a town about two miles outside of Jerusalem. And so you might think nothing important happened there. <clears throat> but, uh, you know, I think this was actually Jesus was assessing the situation. Something he saw bothered him deeply. But in, instead of just snapping and responding then and there, he actually has the whole night to think about what he saw, to pray about it and to figure out how he would respond. So only one gospel mentions Jesus using a whip, John's gospel. 
Um, and so I really slow down at the second stage, the action itself, right? Um, and look at what does John say about the whip? Does it say he whipped people or just the animals? And there, you know, there's a number of clues or, or variables to consider, such as John's gospel explicitly states that Jesus made the whip once he was already in the temple, and it tells us the material he used. It's a it's like a wicker material, like a wicker basket. It was the prevailing theory is it was the bedding used for the animals there. Um, and so this is not a well-designed instrument of torture, you know, made by a skilled craftsman with plenty of time and, and ideal materials. This is a makeshift whip hastily put together from a limited selection of materials. Um, and, you know, I actually... Uh, when I saw what the material was, I, I went, uh, like any millennial, I went to Amazon. I bought a 200-foot roll, you know, free two-day shipping. It was a miracle, I thought. <laughs> Hit buy and then immediately felt guilty for supporting Jeff Bezos. <laughs> uh, you know, the I get it. Uh, it arrives. The kids and I, we watch Indiana Jones, and we take our time trying to make the most intimidating whip we could. <clears throat> and I couldn't make anything that looked intimidating. Like, if I tried to to whip people with this instead of fleeing in fear they would have fallen on the ground laughing <laughs> and the the earliest manuscripts the two earliest manuscripts we have for the gospel of john they actually include the little greek word host which means to approximate something so it's used when it talks about jesus sweating something like blood for example in the garden so these are pseudo whips something like a whip which would be a good description of the whips that I tried to make that day. Um, you know, they kind of resembled a whip. And we actually know uh, from from uh, ancient sources that, that whips like this were actually used to herd cattle back then, not even by hitting them, but by whacking the ground to make a loud noise. Um, so there's that evidence, right? Um, there's other factors, like we know that Roman soldiers were stationed in the in the fortress next door that actually had a tower that looked down into the temple. So uh, if Jesus turned violent, it's hard to explain why they and the temple security didn't intervene. Mm. But ultimately, it comes down to the Greek, what does John actually say? <clears throat> and so I look at the key verse, if I remember right, it's John 2.15. It might be 14, though. And it says, and uh, and making a whip out of cords, he drove from the temple all, and then it has this phrase, to the sheep, kai the cattle. And kai just means and, and to usually just means so. It's like a logical connector kind of word. <clears throat> but that phrase, to the sheep, kai the cattle, this, this construction of to a noun, kai a noun, it's used 90 times in the New Testament. Once here in John chapter 2, 89 times elsewhere. And in every other instance, it's translated into English as um, telling us what the noun it modifies is constructed of. So in this case, he drove out of the temple all. What, what was the all made up of? It was made up of the sheep and the cattle. And there's actually 13 of those 90 instances are just like in John 2, where it's the word all, and then a to noun, chi noun construction. You know, all, both Jews and Greeks. That's to Jews, chi, the Greeks. Um, and so it's 
always telling us what the all consists of, what it's made up of. So, so some have tried to, to translate it as he drove out of the temple all along with the sheep and the cattle, which would mean that he whipped the money changers and the animal sellers. Um, but a number of scholars who have looked at, at the canonical usage of this phrase and how it's used outside of the Bible even at that time has said it's impossible to translate it that way. Um, so, so, you know, at best that neutralizes the text. And, and what I go on to say is, well, what does this actually teach us about peacemaking? Um, and I, I go, I, I tell a story, I won't go into that here, but basically I think the point is it shows that Jesus was not passive in the face of injustice. In other words, he didn't sit by and do nothing, right? Um, when he saw the exploitative practices of the money changers and animal sellers, when he saw how the foreigners were being corralled within the court of the Gentiles, this court that was not originally part of the blueprint for the temple, um, he he had to act. He had to respond. Um, you know, Gandhi referred to Jesus as the most active resistor of injustice in human history. And I think that's what we learn from the temple cleansing scene. Wow. Yeah, that's so beautiful. And I think you made a comment in your book itself about the fact that if he makes a whip in that moment and he drives the animals out, then the money changers are going to go run after their investment and leave the temple as well. Yeah, and you, yeah. you said something kind of tongue in cheek, like, you know, killing two birds with one stone. But but the idea of being being right, I mean, he's going to drive them out because what they need to make money has just left the left the building. So um, which I mean, I just I see that, at you, you know, you've taken the time to look at this from so many different angles. I had never considered the Romans themselves who are constantly on the lookout for anything hinting at violence because they're there to make sure that doesn't happen. And so um, certainly we, we can imagine they would have stopped it if something truly violent was taking place. Um, yeah. well, I mean, come yeah, come Thursday, you know, not even Jesus accusers when they're looking for some false evidence to accuse him to justify putting him to death. You know, if he had acted violently in the temple, surely they would have brought that up. So there's lots of other evidence. And, um, you know, you could say, well, what did it accomplish? You know, I, I don't talk about this in the book, but, you know, sp certainly by the very next day, those money changers and animal sellers would have been back in the temple and the mm -hmm. operations would have continued, right? Um, but I, I think that shows the importance of symbolic acts. We're still talking about what Jesus did that day, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And and when those money changers and the animal sellers, you know, when they fled after their livelihood, after their source of income, what we overlook and don't talk about enough is that it says that the poor and and the lame and the blind, they came in and Jesus healed them. And even children could be heard singing, you know, these groups that were not normally allowed in the temple. Uh, so it, it was a profoundly healing and beautiful act. Absolutely. Yeah, it was so funny. I, this happened half a dozen or more times. You would write something in the book and quote the passage. And I would say, are you ser Are you serious? Is that really what it says? <laughs> and I'd go grab my Bible. And sure enough, that one in particular was there immediately after that. Yeah, you have all these people coming into the temple who clearly were being prevented from from doing so prior to that. So. Yeah. What a, yeah, what a beautiful image. And I really do think we should talk about that more um, because those were the very people who were not welcome in the temple. Um, goodness. Yeah. Well, if we keep going, I don't know, we'll hit every day here with our last 
you know, 20 or 25 minutes or so, but, okay. um, the next day, um, you know, you talked about it's, it's the most talked about day um, of Holy week. So can you just kind of give us an overview of the day's events and maybe highlight why, why do you think we ignore this day or what can we learn from, from Jesus from Holy Tuesday? Yeah. Well, I think we ignore the day cause we're on a, on a rush to get to the main event, you know, the mm. cross and that's yeah. understandable. Um, but, uh, and maybe the other reason is it, it doesn't, contain the you know some of the the scenes that take place they don't have the the visuals that can really latch on and stay in our mind like that triumphal entry of the temple cleansing it's it's a lot of dialogue or back and forth conversation so on tuesday jesus actually has the audacity to go back to the temple you know after monday it says that that the religious leaders were looking for a way to put jesus to death and yet here he returns once again and um and so this time they take the initiative and they actually uh, ask a series of beta questions that they think are these unanswerable tests. And the, the whole point is to drive a wedge between Jesus and his supporters. You know, they're afraid to arrest, to arrest him because the crowds are on his side. Hmm. So they're hoping they can get him to misspeak and that the crowds will turn on him so they can arrest him. Well, Jesus, of course, ace, <coughs> aces their unanswerable test. Um and so after those four questions, you know, one of them being like, uh, is it right to pay the tax to Caesar? Should we pay it or shouldn't we? You know, if you if he says, yes, pay the tax, you know, he's immediately lost favor with the crowds who who uh, despise the tax. But if he says, no, don't pay the tax, they could arrest him for for starting an insurrection for revolting against Rome. So that, you know, that's one example. And that's the uh, one of four questions that I look at in, in that chapter. And then after those four questions, Jesus takes the initiative and he, he launches into a lengthy critique that we often call the seven woes. You know, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Um, and it's a pretty um, direct, uh, maybe you could even say harsh, um, critique of the religious leaders. Um, and after those seven woes, Jesus leaves the temple, never to return again. And... Um, as they're leaving, I think the disciples were relieved, you know, Woo, Jesus wasn't arrested. We did not think that was going to go well, you know. Yeah, that's right. So, so they're happy. And, and this is where they say they're looking around at all the big buildings and they say, wow, look at these magnificent buildings. Look at all these massive stones. And, and indeed, those stones were massive um, in size. And Jesus just like, like, just pops the, the balloon, just deflates, you know, takes all, all the excitement uh, out of them. And says, you know, you see these big buildings, you see these big stones, not one of these will stand. Uh, they're going to be toppled, destroyed, right? Temple's going to be destroyed. And so the up to that point, the disciples, they seemed really chatty. And then there's nothing recorded. They say nothing until they get to, to the Mount of Olives and sit down. And from there, you can actually look across the Kidron Valley and you have this panoramic view of the temple. Um, and it's there that they ask, when will these things happen? And Jesus launches into a pretty lengthy set of teaching and, and some parables to back it up. Um, but it's often referred to as the little apocalypse, where it talks about nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. But you, in other words, you're not going to be one of those two groups fighting, um, but you'll be brought before both. You'll be despised by both. Um, so, so it's a pretty lengthy set of teachings during that day. That's a quick overview for you. Yeah, that's great. And I know, and I think that's kind of the start too of, yeah, let's, let's test this guy. Let's see what he's really all about. And it was, you know, 
they the, they thought they were so creative and, and baiting yes. him with a trap. And of course, he gets out of it. And and uh, you said the same thing, something about when you try to trap people or, or trick them. I can't remember exactly how you worded it, but you said there's those kinds of traps are indiscriminate and you can get caught in your own trap if you um it's basically what happens with with jesus um yep they set the trap and then jesus tricks them in, into stepping in it yep they step in it themselves absolutely yeah so then so then we've got wednesday and i know wednesday it, it seems like it's a little quieter of a day um but you, you did bring up something that i had never i just never thought about before so it, it does say that um that caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, they, they meet behind closed doors to plot Jesus's death. But you kind of brought out something that I had not considered before. And that was just, but why did the Sanhedrin want Jesus dead? What What is their stated motive in the Gospels? Yeah, you know, growing up, I'm not sure I was actually taught this in Sunday school, but just somehow I came to hold the impression that the Sanhedrin, they wanted Jesus dead just because they were the bad guys, you know? They were jealous of his popularity. They were angered that he had just publicly shamed them with those seven woes the days before, you know? They they wanted Jesus dead, but that's not actually the stated motive that the Gospels give. Rather, it says that when they met behind closed doors uh, in Caiaphas's home inside the walls of Jerusalem, and this was the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the Jews, uh, 70 plus one, the one being the high priest, so Caiaphas. And they actually had this really beautiful tradition that they would let the youngest members speak up first, so that way they wouldn't be swayed and influenced by the more tenured members. Hmm. So often the high priest would wait toward the end to speak. Um, and so the the Sanhedrin, they're, they're complaining, they're saying, you know, look, um, if, if we let Jesus continue like the crowds are are coming to his side, um, and and so they were afraid. It's you know they said this man's performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone's going to believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Mm-hmm. And so then Caiaphas finally chimes in and and he basically says, you know, look, you, you know nothing at all. Uh, for it's better that one man die than that a whole nation perish. And, you know, at first glance, Caiaphas's logic, I mean, it seems indisputable. Yeah, one man is not worth as much as an entire nation. And, you know, one of my concerns is I think uh, we still hold to this logic. You know, when I talked about we might cling to the cross of Christ, it embraced the very approach to making and maintaining peace that justified putting Jesus on the cross. This is a classic example of that. You know, we often um, justify the ends using unjust means by by uh, imagining a, a fictional future. Um, so Caiaphas, he concocts this fictional future that Rome will come and take away his nation in order to justify having Jesus put to death. And we, we do that all the time now. I, you know, I remember um, before Beijing really cracked down, you know, um, people were saying, if look, if they have to beat pro-democracy protesters in order to keep China from, from cracking down, then so be it. You know, the ends justify the means. Or if children have to be separated from their parents at the border in order to deter foreigners from flooding into our land, then so be it. The ends justify the means. And if Jesus has to be put to death in order to prevent the destruction of an entire nation, then so be it. The ends justify the means. Um mm-hmm. 
you know, we, we still live by this logic. Um, but, you know, Pastor Brian Zond, uh, he once warned, he said, you know, one of the greatest temptations we face in working for peace is to justify violent means by an imagined good end. Um, hmm. And I think Caiaphas is proof that if you give in to that temptation, there's no limit to the atrocities that you might justify. But but when you look at Jesus, for Jesus, the means were nothing less than the end coming into existence. In other words, you know, his, his efforts to make peace were always with peaceful means. I think of Dr. King, you know, he said, mm-hmm. peace is not merely a distant goal that we seek, but a means by which we arrive at that goal. Mm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's really good. I, I remember reading that section, too, with the ends justify the means. And I thought, oh, my goodness. Yeah, this this kind of logic has rooted itself deeply in into the way that we think. And and I know, of course, with you know Jude, Judas, um, the disciple Judas seems to share some of that because he he eventually does begin to plot with them about how he can be a contributor to, to that fact. And so on, on Thursday, and you brought this out, which I found so fascinating. You said he, Jesus, you know, he sends, he sends his um, couple of his disciples to go prepare an upper room. And, you know, it's going to be this like last minute decision about where they're going to celebrate the Passover. And, and you suggested that part of the reason he does that is because if Judas had known ahead of time where that room would have been, he could have tipped off the authorities and they would have interrupted Jesus's time with his disciples. And so Jesus is being very just shrewd. And, and, you know, he's like, I've got to spend this time with them. This is the last night we're going to spend together. Um, But you talk a lot about Jesus's command to love one another. And you talk about the communal implications of that, not, not as an individual precisely, but, or um, in particular, but rather as a community. So for us as Christians together, why, why is it so important <clears throat> that we engage in peacemaking as part of a community and not just as individual believers? Yeah, great question, Joshua. You know, in the downtown east side, I I worked hard to try to, to love my neighbors well and to really invest in them. You know, I'd spend hours most days prayerfully walking the streets, striking up conversations, getting to know my neighbors. I volunteered at, at a soup kitchen a few days, a few mornings each week. Um, I was always looking for an excuse to treat my neighbors and my and myself to a nice cup of coffee at one of the local coffee shops or, or get some sushi. You know, it, it was like heaven on earth there. You could get sushi cheaper than McDonald's. Um, oh, yes. And, uh, but I have to admit, like in all my efforts on my own to, to be a peacemaker, to, to work for the flourishing of my neighbors, I saw very little fruit. But but like I said at the start, I didn't go there on my own. I was part of a missional community, and we saw our main ministry as that of hospitality, you know, welcoming into our home those who are not normally the recipients of welcome. And as a community, we saw lots of fruit, just beautiful transformations of, of neighbors, getting off of drugs, getting off the streets, uh, graduating from rehab, you know, some of them joined our community and became just beautiful members. One of them is now uh, a missionary in Cambodia. He's been there for 12 years, you know. Um, and um, and so I found myself asking, you know, why this difference? Uh, why did I see such little fruit on my own, yet an abundance of fruit when ministering as part of a community? 
And so in, in this chapter, like you talked about, you know, I, I focused on Jesus's new love command, uh, a new command I give to you or to you all. It's, the word you is plural throughout the command. A new command I give to y'all, love each other just as I have loved y'all. Um, and, you know, this is where Maundy Thursday gets its name. It comes from the Latin mandatum, or, or what we would say mandate, the new mandate. Um, and so I point out, look, this command is new for a couple of reasons. Number one, Jesus uh, has made himself the new standard of love, which is significant in and of itself. But for time's sake, I'm, I'm going to move on from that one. Um, but the other reason it's new is because it's the first time that Jesus has called his followers to commit themselves to each other. You know, this is a different command than love your neighbor as yourself. You can do that on your own, and we're called to do that. Uh, this is different from love your enemies as well. This is saying, I want you all, you as a community, to commit to loving each other just as I have loved you all. And, and like I say in the book, uh, really uh, leaning on the teaching of my friend Dave Andrews, who's a, been involved in uh, missional Christian communities in Australia for almost 50 years, um, he says, look, one person can talk about the love of God and others can gather around and listen and at best the best possible outcome is they could walk away saying wow I've now just heard about God's love but once you have two people committed to loving each other as Christ has loved them you have a relationship think of like two dots with a line connecting them right and others can gather around and look and observe and see how they love each other and that the best possible outcome is they can walk away saying, now I've not just heard about God's love, I've actually seen God's love. Hmm. But something miraculous happens once you add at least one more person. Once you have three people, and maybe picture like a triangle here, right? Uh, the number of relationships begins to take off exponentially. So with three people, there's now three relationships. With four people, there's actually six relationships. With five, I think it's 11 relationships, if I remember my math correctly. Mm -hmm. It just begins to explode. And the beautiful thing about community, if your listeners picture that triangle again, is now others can come and they can enter into that community and no longer just hear about God's love or see God's love. They can actually experience God's love. And, and so in the book, I say, you know, look, peace, it's always complete in community. Um, on our own, all we can do is talk about peace and demand justice. We see that on Twitter all the time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but in community, you can actually embody peace and do justice. You know, in community, you can model on a small scale the kind of peace that you're seeking to cultivate on a grand scale. Wow. Yeah, that was really beautiful. And you had some illustrations there of some of those dots and how the relationships multiply exponentially. And um, I do think that's what we're called to be as a church is this community of love that embodies Jesus's life amongst ourselves for the for the benefit of the world. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, that's kind of his high point with his own disciples. And then shortly after that, um, Judas leaves and there's the you know, the betrayal and the denial. And then we, we come into the, to, to Friday, which I do think, like you said, we might skip over Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, those things, because we're eager to get to Friday. But I do want to talk about Friday. Um, what, what okay. some of the things that you say here, but based on Jesus's weeping and the, the, the palm branches on Palm Sunday and, and all of that is that 
it really does come down to a, a choice between Barabbas and Jesus. And you suggest that it represents the fundamental decision each of us must make on, on Friday. So I, I'd love it if you kind of set it up. You know, you shared a story with a, a camp speaker at the beginning of the chapter and, and some things about a hammer. So I maybe mean, just, just tie some thoughts in there together for us about how you see this being a choice that we still face today. Yeah, you know, so come Friday, uh, Jesus is, is brought before Pontius Pilate, and Pilate uh, had a custom read of releasing one prisoner, Not probably not because he was a very compassionate uh, provincial ruler. In fact, a lot of uh, sources from the time describe him as cold and calculated, and indeed mm-hmm. this was probably a calculated decision, a way to placate the crowds, you know, when tensions were high. And so Pilate... Well, the Gospels vary. Sometimes it has the crowds say, uh, initiating it, saying, you know, you have this tradition, we want Barabbas. Uh, and some of the other Gospels, Pilate initiates and says, hey, uh, I'm going to release a prisoner. Do you want Jesus or Barabbas? But either way, the choice comes down to these two men. And, uh, you know, I think of like uh, the Christian Cobes Dumais' popular book, Jesus and John Wayne. Well, this was the original Jesus and John Wayne <laughs> choice, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so... Uh, you can't understand the significance of this choice unless you can really answer two questions. Why was Barabbas in jail, and what's the significance of his name? Mm-hmm. So uh, as to the crime, you know, it doesn't say that Barabbas was in jail for a petty misdemeanor or stealing or tax evasion. Rather, the Gospels explicitly state that Barabbas was in prison because he had murdered someone during a past insurrection attempt. So in other words... Barabbas had proven his willingness to fight for the liberation of his peacemate, of his people. He may be a failed insurrectionist, but at least he had proven he was willing to bring a hammer down upon his enemies. Now, his name, let me pronounce it a little differently. Barabbas, Barabba, it means son of the father. And Matthew's gospel actually tells us his first name, Jesus Barabbas. <laughs> so in other words... The gospel writers present this choice as the, as the choice of choosing between two different uh, messiahs. Who do you think is anointed by God? Mm. Jesus Barabbas, who has proven that he's willing to kill, or Jesus the Nazarene, who has repeatedly said throughout the week that he refused to kill, but yet was willing to be killed. And so I think, you know, by the time Friday rolled around, Friday morning rolled around, the crowds realized that Jesus was not coming as the hammer of God. And I think we're supposed to see ourselves in the crowds. And so when we realized that Jesus was not the hammer of God, we picked up the hammer and we nailed Jesus to a cross. And I, I think it's really important to add, uh, you know, I think we're meant to compare Jesus's dying words to the dying words of Mattathias 200 years before. So for your listeners, remember, Mattathias' dying words were, avenge the wrong done to your people, pay back the Gentiles in full. And those dying words, they sparked a violent revolution. But Jesus' dying words could not have been more different. Hmm. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And I think Jesus' dying words also sparked a revolution, albeit a nonviolent one. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's just, you know, when, when Pilate says, who shall I release? And the people chant, 
for, yeah, the Messiah that they believe will bring them the deliverance. And Mm -hmm. what a, yeah, I I think, I I mean, I grew up with it almost, almost um, seeing Jesus's death as so orchestrated and driven by God that it was just, you know, it was an inevitability and you didn't really pay much attention to the reasons that the crowds give or that the reasons the Sanhedrin gives, but your, your book has, has, has tied it together so well to show the, the real on the ground political implications and the real life. Hey, we're struggling in the inner city. Like how do we apply Jesus's teachings there? I mean, this is something truly remarkable. Um, well, then we, we know, I mean, he is put to death and then Saturday seems to be almost a, a blip on our screen. You know, we don't talk a lot about that. We don't have a lot in the Gospels about it, but it says, you, you wrote, when you contend for peace in places where it is painfully absent, most days feel like Saturday of Holy Week, silent, confusing, and hopeless. So what, what can Saturday teach us about peacemaking? Yeah. Um, you know, on Saturday, like you said, there's not much in the Gospels or in the New Testament, but there are some some hints, some glimpses of, you know, what ultimately, like in the Apostles' Creed, it comes to, we, we refer to it as Jesus's descent into hell or the harrowing of Hades. And, and uh, throughout church history, this was actually a really important teaching. Uh, Christ's descent. You know, the the earliest Holy Week hymn we have is about Saturday. Um, and, and so like the Apostles' Creed, you know, it says, I believe uh, in Jesus Christ who, I'm cutting out some of it here, but who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. And so, you know, um, most artwork in, in Protestant and evangelical circles and uh, it tends to depict the resurrection as uh, Jesus in, in a white robe all by himself. But but throughout Eastern Christendom, most of the artwork, uh, it depicts Jesus uh, shattering the gates of hell with Satan bound at his feet. You know, um, he's pulling Adam and Eve out of their graves and leading a procession of liberated souls out of hell. And so, look, I... I don't think there's enough in in scriptures to develop an in-depth theology of Holy Saturday, but I think there is enough to to give us a very valuable peacemaking lesson. Namely, you know, peacemaking, it's hard, discouraging work. The the destructive forces plaguing our communities, they can seem unstoppable. But, you know, even on days when all hope feels lost, Saturday reminds us that Jesus is at work robbing the grave and plundering even the darkest of hells. So so in the book, you know, I, I, I basically say, look, Holy Saturday reminds us to press on. You know, we don't deny the death, the reality of death and suffering around us. Rather, Saturday gives us the courage to remain immersed in such realities. So we press on because Jesus is at work beneath the surface, defeating death, dismantling despair. We, we press on because the days when Jesus seems most lifeless may actually be the days when he's most actively working for our peace. Mm. Yeah, that's really, really good. That's really good. Do, do you have a couple more minutes or do you need to go? Sure. 
Okay, oh, so let's that. wrap it up with Easter Sunday. I mean, this oh, is we the gotta last do one. That, we got to do that, and then I just want to, you know, just the biggest takeaway you hope your readers get. But so, your final chapter, you state that as people of the resurrection, Christians are meant to cultivate the future promised by God in the messiness of the here and now. What are the implications, as you see them, of of living like this as people of the resurrection? Yeah, well, you know, for. For first century Jews, uh, most believed in a future resurrection, but they believed it would take place at the end of time when God would make all things right. Not that uh, it would start with, with one man and, and break into the messiness of the here and now. Um, and so to be a people of the resurrection for the early church, they, they understood that to mean that... Um, the resurrection signified the inbreaking of God's future plans into our present world order. And so to be a people of the resurrection meant that we were to be uh, outposts, uh, you know, to use that communal language again from Thursday, the church was to be an outpost of God's future kingdom. You know, I think of uh, Scott McKnight, who penned the forward for this book. He said, since the kingdom is already making itself present, we are called to live now in light of that future consummation. So, um, you know, Justin Martyr in the second century, uh, he said about the, the global church, he said, we ourselves were well conversant with war, murder, and everything evil. But all of us Christians throughout the whole wide earth have traded in our weapons of war. We've exchanged our swords for plowshares and our spears for farm tools. And a lot of people uh, like to quote that, that statement from Justin Martyr, but they leave off the last sentence where he says, um, now, we, the church, we cultivate the expectation of the future given to us by the crucified one. Uh, in other words, um, to be a people of the resurrection is to say, because we know there's this vision in the Hebrew scriptures where there will be no more war and we will lay down our weapons, we are going to be the people that begin to live out that future reality now. Yes. Yes, that is the, I think that's the, the thrust of everything you're trying to say in this book is mm -hmm. that if we really follow Jesus, we follow his ways. And the one who was raised from the dead is the one who perfectly embodied this. And so that's the new life we're called to live into. So one last question for you. And just that's, what's, what's the biggest takeaway you hope readers, readers get from, from your book? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Look, you know, you don't have to live in a place like the downtown east side to know that injustice is is rampant in our world today. You know, when I started writing this book five years ago now, I never could have imagined just how much vitriol and division there'd be in my own country. Mm -hmm. um, and so my hope for, for readers, for your listeners, um, even if they don't pick up the book, but they, they just go back to the Gospels and look at each day of Holy Week is, is really that... You know, I, I think of Jesus's lament at the start, if only you knew the things that make for peace. Well, I think he's still crying as he looks down now upon his church and saying, if you only knew the things that make for peace, if you'd only embrace my approach to peacemaking. And, and so my hope uh, is that, uh, you know, after reading this book, people would be able to say, now I know the things that make for peace. And now I gladly and wholeheartedly want, seek to use and cultivate and employ Jesus's approach to peacemaking. So I, I, my hope is that this book will equip uh, 
other Christians to faithfully and effectively serve as practitioners uh, to cultivate shalom wherever it's painfully absent in our world. Yeah, that's really great. That's really great. J- Jason, thank you so much for, for this. You've, we've been on the, on the line now for over an hour. I really appreciate the time you've taken. I'm so grateful for this book. This, this is one of my new favorites and I just, I think you've organized it really well. You've, you've discussed it really well. You've invited us in as, as readers to, to be challenged, to be encouraged, to find hope where it seems dark and gloomy. So, um, thank you. Thank you so much for this. Thank you, Joshua. I appreciated our conversation today. So if there are people who want to find you or follow you, are you online or where might be some places people could look you up? Yeah, you know, I'm on Facebook and Instagram. You can just search Jason Porterfield and, and you'll find me. Uh, but probably the main place is my website, jasonporterfield.com. You can actually uh, get the first chapter, uh, just to click a button and you'll get it right away, a PDF of it. Uh, if you look, want to read that uh, first for Fight Like Jesus. And then I also on the on the homepage... If you scroll down, I have a free uh, little ebook called 100 Early Christian Quotes on Not Killing. And it's just a one-page introduction and then 100 quotes. I just really wanted to let the early church speak for themselves on this matter. Uh, and so that resource is also available. That is wonderful. I'll put a link to that in my in the podcast notes so, so listeners can find that. Well, Great. thank you so much. I hope you have a fantastic rest of the day. Great weekend. And um, as we head into Lent, I know this will be on the on the hearts and minds of a lot of people. So hopefully Jesus will, will convey his peacemaking means through us all and, and challenge us and change us for his glory. So, Amen. Thanks yes, a lot. Joshua. Alrighty. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to Unbinding the Bible. If you find these episodes valuable and you haven't already done so, please leave a rating or review or both on whatever podcast app you choose to listen to these episodes. And then go and share one or more of your favorite episodes with a friend. You can also reach out to Joshua with any comments or questions to unbindingthebible at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and have a great week.